Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 100 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. Today's show features Susan A., a woman whose story draws into sharp focus just how damaging family secrets can be and how they can pave the road to alcoholism and drug addiction. Like some of us recovering alcoholics, Susan experienced a traumatic event when she was a child. The natural need to tell someone and seek understanding and comfort was quashed by a not-now attitude of her parents. Having no one to turn to, she repressed the feelings as another horrible secret. The continuous fear and self-recrimination darkened the ensuing years until she found alcohol and drugs as a teenager. Instantaneously, they had the desired effect of obfuscating the negative feelings Susan had bottled up for years. Subsequently, she became a daily user, but still functioned despite the debilitating disease. That made for a life fraught with two failed marriages and serious parenting issues while she was befogged by alcoholic blackouts and increasingly dangerous behavior. By the time Susan finally made it to Alcoholics Anonymous, the disease had essentially whipsawed every aspect of her life. Despite a bleak outlook, Susan went to meetings where she met her sponsor and started working the steps. However, a couple more traumatic events occurred around five years sober. Her AA lifeline was stretched almost to the breaking point. Thanks to another alcoholic who observed the fraying strands, Susan was able to hang on. But for as many meetings as she regularly attended, some of Susan's most regrettable behavior occurred while she was in AA. Some of her darkest hours ensued during sobriety when she lost virtually everything of value and meaning. Thankfully, at some point during the past several years, Susan redoubled her efforts on her program and ardently reworked the steps to address the bad behavior and personal losses during sobriety. That work paid off, and today she lives free of secrets and loss while imparting her hard-won experience to the women she sponsors. Those noble efforts have grown through the years and helped her establish a stronger connection to her higher power. With 15 years sober, Susan's daily life in AA is frequently augmented with insightful spiritual experiences. Her demonstration of the ability to pass that wisdom and hope on to others is a beauty to behold. So, sit back and enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Susan A. Hi, I'm Susan. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for doing the AA Recovery <laughs> Interviews podcast. You're welcome. We've been talking about doing this for a while, and yeah. we finally finally gotten together, and we're doing it after a meeting that mm -hmm. we both attend. Some of the things you said today were just amazing because we were talking about the big book mm -hmm. and about the stories, and you, you told a story that I'd never heard before about what a sponsor did with you early on. Yeah, um, my very first sponsor had all the stories in the big book ripped out of her of her big book, and um, except for acceptance was the answer. And I always thought that was so odd and never really understood why she did that. But she did hmm. say, because the solution is then the first 164 pages. And I could buy into that, yeah, that makes but sense. I couldn't buy into 
why the stories were ripped out because I identified. You mean physically ripped out? Just... Yeah, yeah. So her big book was, you know, kind of flat, <laughs> you know, but I identified with the stories, you know, and I still do identify with the stories. Okay. So all the first 164 pages, doctor's opinion, all that was in her book, but the stories, except for acceptance, was the answer was the only one that she did, that she had in her big book, yeah. Did she tell you to do that with yours as well? Oh, no, no, not at all. I just thought it was so odd. Did you ask her about it at the time? Mm-mm, because I was so new and scared and not knowing what to do, you know. I just never thought about it until years later, you know, and then actually in the meeting today, it, that was that memory that popped up that she had her stories ripped out of her book. You talked about being new. You've been sober, what, 14? 15 years on January 2nd. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. 15. I'm a January 1st guy myself. Yeah. So. <laughs> I waited till the 2nd. <laughs> okay, so January, uh, January 2nd, 2008. Now, was that your first entree into AA? No, I had come in a few years before and got chips I didn't earn. You know, I uh, never worked the program. I never really talk about it because I didn't work the program. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I was still using drugs and um, not drinking, but was still using drugs. And they suggested that perhaps I stop smoking pot. And, and I didn't. And the truth is, I wasn't ready. I was coming in for other people at that time. My ex-husband, my kids, all of that. And uh, I wasn't doing it for myself. So how long did you stick around that first time? Couple months. That was it? Yeah. What was there about those early meetings that, that you couldn't buy into or that you didn't feel applied to you? I couldn't identify. I mean, and I don't know if it was because of the meetings I was going to uh -huh. or what, but I could not see myself as an alcoholic then. Like I, I had a car, my house, my kids, my my husband at the time, you know, I had all of my stuff and here I was in this room with people talking about that they had lost everything. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm like, well, that's not my story. So I wouldn't identify with them. And, uh, and I really look back on those days and I just wasn't done. Hmm. I, I had to get done. Now, if you had gotten sober at that point, how long would you be sober today? Probably about 20 years. So about five years before you had the opportunity to experience AA and it wasn't for you. Exactly. What led you up to that point of, of feeling like you needed to go to AA? Or my way wasn't working anymore. I tried all the things, how to quit drinking for dummies, how to, I tried to church it out, I tried to therapy it out, I tried every way possible except walking into these rooms again. Huh. And it was, it was such a God thing, like my, part of my story is I would sit in my swing in the backyard with uh -huh. a Bible in my lap, a glass of wine in one hand and a joint in the other, trying to figure out why I can't stay sober. <laughs> yeah. You know, why, why is God not doing this for me? Yeah. And it wasn't until I stuck around this last time and was like, oh wait, he'll give me that strength to do whatever I want to do with it but he's not gonna knock the bottle out of my hand. I gotta take the necessary steps. And then um, I had a um, horrible New Year's Eve, mm -hmm. and I just so happened to have a doctor's appointment on January 2nd, about 10.45 in the morning, and I had been with this doctor for years, mm -hmm. and um, he suggested I go to AA. And I said, well, I've been there, and they're not my people. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, have you been to the club? And I said, no, and he goes, they have a 12:15 meeting, go to that meeting, come back tomorrow. And I thought I knew, I've lived in this city my whole life, so I was like, 
I know where that is. So here's an AA club you couldn't find. And I couldn't find <laughs> it. And uh, I literally was smoking my last joint and I was coming around the freeway and was like, you know what? I'll just go tomorrow. I'll just go tomorrow. And I happened to look up and I saw the sign and I went, crap. Yeah. And so, and then I went to that meeting and I heard what I needed to hear. And of course it was full that day, you know, a lot of newcomers in there. And that's considered the beginner's meeting. When I used to go to that particular club, they called it uh, the beginner's meeting. That, that's the, the club that I got sober at and that right. I stayed in was my home group for a long, long time, the 1215. I did the same when I mm -hmm. worked on this with the side of town that that club is on. So here you were in 2008, you tried this in 2003 and you were turned off by it. Once you tried it and failed in 2003, and you said you were sober for a couple months, how often were you going to meetings in the, at that time? Maybe a couple of, a week. Mm. I was going to some women's meetings, and I remember I had uh, my youngest son at the time. Uh, he was a he was a baby, and I would they would allow me to bring him. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I just I, I, I was not ready. I mean, I was hearing all these stories, and I was like that. That's just not me. That's interesting. So you, you go to the meetings. You're bringing the baby with you. Obviously, just having the baby with you sets you apart. Yes. Uh, you know, I I've known plenty of people over the years who've brought babies to meetings. Sometimes they're not allowed, but most mm -hmm. times, if it's a small, small baby and not too disruptive. Yeah. Uh, but that's even more of a, a difference with the other people sitting in the room. You're the only one there with the baby, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when you came that first time, we're going to talk a little bit more about what happened yeah. before 2008, but when you came in 2003, what was there that led you to AA at that point? So my husband at the time, um, he was not an alcoholic mm -hmm. and um, I didn't know that I was an alcoholic. Mm. I, I knew I drank differently than he did. And uh, I knew that I smoked pot differently than he oh, yeah. did. Uh -huh. You know, all my hard drugs were before this marriage. And so my, in my mind, I kept going, well, I quit that, I quit that, I quit that. You know, why couldn't I quit this? And there was like a little switch. And so I became a hider uh. and I hid everything. And we had we had gotten into a disagreement about it. And he's like, you know, you, you got to do something about your drinking and you smoking pot. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll quit, I'll quit. That just led me into a whole nother realm of learning how to hide. You oh. know, I've been a hider my whole life. I, I learned how to hide whenever I was eight years old and how to just destroy me and make sure everybody else is okay on the outside. So you went underground with it? Pretty much, yeah. Now this is after you'd been married for how long? Let's see, when did we get married? We got married in 98, so. About five years in? Yeah. And yeah. were there children in the scene at that point? Mm -hmm. So I have a, an older son that was from my previous uh, first marriage, and then Mark and I had two children together. Okay. And um, our daughter was five at that time, and then our youngest was about five months, six okay. months. Okay, so this is when you came in. In 2003. Right, and you came in at the behest of your second husband yes. at that time. So you said he didn't use like you did, he didn't drink like you did. Had he been your partner in drinking and smoking at all? No, never, no? never. So he was never really involved in that No, scene. and you know, and that's just kind of part of the story too, right? It was yeah. like, which ultimately led to the demise of our marriage right. six years ago. Mm -hmm. 
we were engaged. I started noticing things like that he didn't drink, he didn't smoke pot, and I was like, do I really want this part of my life, mm -hmm. you know? And we were end up, I was gonna break off the engagement, and then I got pregnant with my daughter. And so it was kind of one of those. And we lived like that, and so I just hid it. You know, I hid all of it until I couldn't hide it anymore. Well, and I guess by that time you had become a good hider because you mentioned earlier that when you were eight years old you were doing that. What was there about your family of origin and your childhood that had you evolving into the person at eight years old that was hiding? You know, I grew up in a great home, you know, with a mom and dad, and I mean, there was alcohol in, mm -hmm. uh, in, our, in our life, and I had something tragic happen to me when I was eight. Mm. We never, it was one of those things in my family growing up, if you don't talk about it, it didn't happen. And so I remember when that happened to me when I was eight, mm -hmm. and at some point I was gonna, I think go tell my mom, mm -hmm. and my mom put up her hand and said, not right now, I'm busy. And something inside of me broke. I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna, carry this with me for the rest of my life and not tell anybody. You're thinking this at eight years old. Mm -hmm. And also it was the moment that I dismissed any kind of God. Um, my parents were raised in the church. Every time the church doors were open, my parents had to be there. They swore they would never do that to their kids. Mm. And so the only time we got any kind of um, God in our life was from both sets of grandparents. Mm. Well, my mom's parents, their God was hellfire damnation. Mm. My dad's mom and dad, their God was grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, all these things. And so I had this distorted image anyways of who God was. This clash of gods. Yeah. And so I tended to gravitate towards my dad's parents anyways mm. because my grandfather, I was the first girl born in 30, 40 years. So mm -hmm. it was kind of like, I was like the creme de la creme to my grandfather. And I worshiped him, he worshiped me, all this. And so I tend to gravitate towards that God. But when that happened to me at eight, mm -hmm. I took the hellfire and damnation God and knew that I was bad and that that only happens to bad girls. And I remember specifically that day saying, there is no God. And I spent the next, God, up till I was 25 years old, not believing in any kind of God. Matter of fact, hating God. That's really very tragic and sad. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not an uncommon story for people who've been through traumatic events that even pre-verbal and kind of mark the rest of their lives and you spend the rest of your life in that mold trying to get out of it. I had a lot of very, very serious events as a child with a rageaholic father and, and, and the, the beatings and everything else that when I was too small to even remember feeling that sense of loss of anything to believe in mm -hmm. because you start to realize the only person you can believe in, you don't know who it is. It's not certainly not myself, but like what you're talking about, you, you go through the traumatic event and then you spend the next umpteen number of years having to deal with the aftermath of that. Yeah. So, so growing up with parents who you, you just didn't talk about it, yeah, you know, just led me to that place of I'm like I can't talk about anything, and it's been a process over the last literally 15 years of my sobriety, learning how to communicate my feelings and uh, my thoughts and all of that, and and navigate with parents that are getting older, and how do you do that? What is what do they need to know? Mm -hmm. What do they not need to know? Because I've done so much healing 
in my adult life that there's certain things that they just don't need to know. I get that. Maybe because they're not equipped, but it was one of the reasons why I kept going to empty wells though too. You know, why I had husband number one, husband number two that were emotionally unavailable. I kept going to these places where they weren't emotionally available. I think there's a tendency for us to do that. I know in my case and in other people I've interviewed, the vast majority of people who go through that seek out people who are just like that to try and resolve today what they couldn't resolve then. And it never works. Never. So I can see why certain things happen. Like I can remember when I first got sober and, and you know did all the step work, right, to start the healing process. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my brother never made it onto my resentment list because I was like, I don't have any resentments at my brother. Mm -hmm. You know, well, he made it to my resentment list at year seven in my sobriety. And it was because he was there when that happened to me, but he wasn't there. Mm -hmm. He had gotten mad at me. You know, it was a whole, you know, he had gotten mad at me, threw my doll down, and then the thing happened to me. Well, what came to, to light was, well, if he would have been there, this wouldn't have happened to me. And then over the course of my recovery, I learned, oh, now I see why it had to happen to me because I've been able to work with other women who have had the same thing happen to them. And mm -hmm. it's really just turned my tragedy into something really beautiful, you know? So now I don't look at it and that person who did this to me was a family member and, uh, and I was able to forgive and have this person in my home and pray with this man and it's kind of like I had to I had to take my shoes off and put his on and be like oh you learned this from somewhere right so maybe it happened to you you know because you just don't do things like that yeah. you know and uh, and it was been a very healing process and now I can see why it had to happen at the time, you couldn't have told me that. I thought I was bad. No, and what we know about those kind of situations as recovered alcoholics is there's a gift in that. And Beautiful. the gift is what you just said. Not only the healing with the person, but the healing that you're able to affect in the people that you sponsor by virtue of that experience. You've gone through something that they've probably gone through and never been able to put the words mm -hmm. or the images to, and, and you've done it. But at eight years old, to say to an eight-year-old who's just experienced it, it's not that bad when you realize that one day this will be the gift you're able to share. You can't you say that. that. Eight, you don't know that mm -hmm. at eight. So when did alcohol first enter the picture for you? What was your behavior like after this event occurred? You couldn't tell anybody about it. What was the progression of your life school, growing up, and alcohol and drugs entering the picture? So I can remember taking my first sip of alcohol when I was about three or four. Uh -huh. I can remember, my because my parents drank, and my grandfather, whom I adored, you know, drank. And he would always, you know, pull the pop, the, the yeah. pop top uh -huh. that was, you know, you had to pull it off. It wasn't how it is today. Yeah, right. And we would make little necklaces out oh, of yeah, it. Yeah. And he would always put salt on his, the top of the beer and I would lick it off and I would think to myself, oh, that tastes good, <laughs> right? But I didn't, I didn't think at the time like, oh, yeah. I'm gonna do this again, right? Yeah. But it was just part of our life, you know? That it was just part of it. Yeah. But when that happened at eight, I didn't really go into thinking, oh, I'm gonna change the way I feel and all this. Sure. I was um, really into dance. I started dancing when I was three years old, but I started noticing that that's where I found 
piece was whenever I was in dance class and all of that. And so I'd be like, so I tried to set myself up like, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna go to the high school performing arts, I'm gonna go to New York, I'm gonna be this big, huge, grand thing, I'm gonna model, I'm gonna do all this stuff. I was throwing myself into making everything on the outside perfect. Sure. At 13, uh, my grandfather died mm. and it crushed my soul uh -huh. and uh, it crushed me. Mm. And I remember wanting to talk to my parents about it because I worshiped this man mm. and they didn't want to talk about it. Like they closed the casket, everything was done. Mm. We're never going to talk about it again. Well, here I am, this 13 year old trying to figure out why is no one talking about anything in this family? I need to talk. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I learned just in the, the course of my journey is um, I'm a feeler and I need to process my feelings and some people just aren't equipped to handle that. I was a lot, mm -hmm. you know? And so I remember my brother, you know, always, um, my parents gravitated towards him because he didn't require it. Hmm. You know, I required it. And, um, hmm. and so when my grandfather passed away, I just knew like, shit, I'm gonna carry this. Like I, there's no one to talk to about it. And I was um, leaving the bus one day, and this guy said, um, "Hey, I got, I got a joint. You want, mm -hmm. you want to take it?" And mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, "I don't do that. I'm not gonna ever smoke pot." Well, just take it, just take it. And a couple of girlfriends and I were going to the skating ring that night. It was on a Friday. And uh, we were getting ready and we were drinking Boone's Farm. Oh, yeah. And I said, hey, um, Leo gave me a joint. You guys want to smoke it? <laughs> and they're like, sure. And so we did it. And I remember the minute I smoked that joint, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this again. Yeah. They couldn't stand it. They didn't like it. They didn't want any part of it. And I chased that high for years. Mm. And um, because what it did for me was it shut down any kind of feelings I ever had. Mm. And now in recovery, I know that not only did it shut down the bad feelings, but it shut down the good ones too. Yeah, it, it has a way of doing that. So you were dealing with the repressed feelings from when you were eight and all the other stuff that added up during that point. Mm -hmm. You found the place to put those feelings and not have to worry about them. Mm -hmm. with marijuana yeah and that was at what 13? 13 13 and then you know and of course you know I was still in dance and I was still doing all this stuff and um and so we you know we just didn't get our hands on it all the time you know so but it, it was one of those things that any opportunity I had I yeah. did it you know and then my parents decided to put me in therapy and all this kind of stuff but they didn't want to go to therapy so I'm just in therapy and talking to the therapist and did marijuana ever come up during those discussions at all they asked but they weren't I don't know I grew up in the 80s so it wasn't kind of you know it, it, to parents who's like just let them kind of raise themselves type stuff yeah so your parents didn't but did the therapist ever ask you about it or no I I don't really remember if they did I probably was very honest about it because that's always anytime anyone would listen I would like share that except to my parents yeah and, uh, but I hid everything. I felt like I was really good at hiding. You know, I got into high school and, you know, certain things started happening and I started drinking more and I started, um, you know, smoking more pot and then that graduated to other things. Mm -hmm. And I noticed I got kicked off of the drill team and cause I was at a party, but I wouldn't make thinking that any of this had to do with alcohol. I just kept thinking I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
And I think what happened was, is when I didn't make it into the high school performing arts because somebody else beat me, it was always somebody else beating me before I got there. Then that kind of seemed like it was my whole life. You know, I grew up with a brother who's 14 months older than I am. And um, I don't know, but I grew up underneath the umbrella of potential, like just do what your brother does, uh -huh. you know, but my brother just never got caught, you know, and I got caught at everything. <laughs> and so my high school years were very rough. I had you know, friends, but all my friends were always older, and my parents couldn't understand why I hung out with the older people, and. So you had a specific crowd of people that you hung with to drink and smoke. Yeah, but I could hang out with this group of people too, I could hang out with this group of people, I could hang out with this group of people. It was kind of like a chameleon. Well, as a hider, you would be able to do that, right? Yeah, I was able to like move with all the, the people. Mm, I get it. I just wanted to get through school, mm -hmm. you know, and then um, my parents are like, you got to go to college, you got to do this. And my dad and my whole family believes maroon. Everything is Aggie, 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 Aggie. <laughs> and my brother went off to A&M. They're like, well, you need to go to A&M. I'm like, I don't want to go to A&M. And they're like, well, you need to go. And I'm like, I want to go to UT. Yeah. And my dad goes, well, I'm not paying for it. Oh, I ended up moving out of my house. I turned 18 in October. I moved out two weeks later. Over an allegiance to a football team. <laughs> necessarily know that that's why I moved out, but but I moved out before I graduated, moved in with first husband number one. Okay. And uh, still managed to make it back and forth, graduated, and uh, went off to life. And ex-husband number one and I were really into hardcore drugs and... Uh -huh. Um, and the whole thing was, you know, always, well, let's get married because that'll fix it. Okay. Did you meet him in college? I didn't go to college. He was older than me. He was older. And you met him after you got out of high school? No, I met him in high school. And that really made my parents upset, you I'll know. Bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 18, you had the opportunity to move out mm -hmm. from the parents. And, yeah. and I did. But you found this man who mm -hmm. you already knew and who would engage in the same mm -hmm. kind of behavior as you would. Absolutely. You mentioned hard drugs. What did that look like? Um, well, we were um, big into cocaine and ecstasy mm -hmm. and acid and wow. every all of it. He was um, a drug dealer. Mm. <laughs> God, just even talking about it today, I'm like going, how is that even my life? You know, it's almost like codependency too yeah. you know it was we were codependent on each other it was you know the whole I, I was he, he was an empty well so therefore he was safe for me but yet really I wanted someone that was emotionally available but he wasn't emotionally available because drugs and alcohol keeps you from being available and so we decided you know well let's get married because that's going to fix it and he his drug use started to escalate Mm -hmm. Worse than mine, I started to kind of like, oh, I don't want this for my life, the hardcore drugs. And one night we were um, over at some friend's house, and uh, this is so odd to me, but we were in this house, and um, we were making a delivery, and I had gone upstairs to go to the bathroom, and there were some people in there shooting up heroin. I looked at the people, and they're like, hey, you want to try this? And there was something in my brain that clicked, and I went, what would my parents think? Didn't matter that I just took a hit of ecstasy, snorted some cocaine, but something in my brain clicked at that moment was like, oh my God, what would my parents think? Hmm. And I ran out of there and uh, thank God did not chase that dragon. Wow. But um, that kind of opened my 
thought process like a little bit to where like what my life was looking like mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted something different and we decided to have a baby. <laughs> so this is how many years into that marriage that, that all this is taking place? Mm, so we got together when I was 17. We married when I was 20 and had Mason when I was 22. Okay. So all of that was in, you know, just tumultuous. So the idea was have the baby to... Because everything's going to be better. Because everything will be better with the baby. Mm -hmm. That's kind of been my life. If I just make this better, do this, do this, everything's going to be better, and it never was. That's not an unusual story mm -hmm. for a lot of people where, you know, let's have a baby, it'll heal the relationship, and it hardly ever works never. out that way. So when you got pregnant, did you recognize the importance of not drinking or using drugs? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And so you stopped? I stopped. He continued. And that allowed me nine months to be like, oh my gosh, this is this is going to be my life. You really noticed the gulf between I, you. I then. did. I did. And then, um, of course, I had the baby and went right back to what I was doing. Went right back to drinking, went right back to smoking pot, um, occasionally doing cocaine, but not the ecstasy or anything like that. How did that affect your mothering at that point? I guess okay, but I was so young anyways. I mean, like... I was still a child. I don't care what anyone says, 22, you're still a child. But I took care of my, I mean, I went to work, I did all the things, you know, made yeah. sure that he was taken care of. And then one night, he was about nine months old and my ex-husband came in and he had been out drinking, doing drugs, and he passed out in a plate of spaghetti. Oh. And I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And I packed up everything I could in my little bitty Cavalier car uh -huh. and my baby, and I went home. And my parents welcomed us in, and mm. um, you know, I raised this child until my husband number two came in, which he came in exactly the same way husband number one came in. So husband number one, did you, once you moved in with your folks, did you just go ahead and file for divorce? Mm -hmm. And so that happened relatively quickly, well, or did it take a while? Very quickly, no, we didn't have anything. You know, we were just two young kids, didn't have anything. Yeah, so, so he let you go, you mm -hmm. went on. How long was it before you went to husband number two? Three years. Three years. Mm -hmm. So were you living with your folks the whole time? With no, the I lived with them for a little while, and then I had my own place, and I had a job, mm -hmm. and um, I had gone back to school a little bit, taking a few classes here and there, but my alcoholism started to exceed. Like, I, I started noticing it more. I had um, a couple of friends that I would hang out with, and know at this time, during this whole process, there was no God in my life. Like absolutely none and I had this one friend who we were sitting around one night and we were smoking a joint and she asked me she goes what do you think about this Jesus person and I'm like don't even talk to me don't want to know anything about him and I had another tragic thing happen to me after a night of drinking mm -hmm. and woke up um, in Herman Park just to show and this was before cell phones you know disheveled not knowing how I got there and uh, I made it to a payphone, and she came and picked me up. And I remember sitting in the car. It was right at my 25th birthday. And I looked over at her, and I was like, maybe there's something to this Jesus person. We, we went to church. I got saved. I put my nose in the Bible and did everything I could. I didn't date. I didn't go out. I quote unquote stop drinking mm -hmm. um, that should have been a sign like um, still smoked pot and I started praying for God to bring somebody into my life that will help me 
Hmm. And then in white husband number two, I started noticing that that's when all my hiding really amped up because he just was not like me. He had, you know, he went to college, he did this, he had a business, successful business, everything was perfect. All he wanted was a wife that could stay at home and raise babies and da 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 da. Well, that was attractive to me. Sure. And um, not realizing that I had gone to another well. Another empty well. Mm -hmm. And we spent the next 18 years living our life like that. And then, but then the first 10 years of my our marriage, I was drunk or high. And then um, the next eight years, I lived the life of recovery. And it didn't survive. The marriage did not survive the life of recovery. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So during the first 10 years of that marriage, you're still drinking, you're still using, mm -hmm. you're a functional al alcoholic at that point? Well, I was a stay-at-home mom. I made sure everything was perfect on the outside. I mean, we were going to church, we were, kids were in private school. I mean, everything on the outside was perfect. But inside? I was dying. Okay, so everything, you're living your life inside the closet, going out to enjoy life in mm -hmm. whatever way you could. Mm -hmm. That must have been some miserable years It in was there. very hard. I mean, I guess looking at it today, it was really, like, we had some great times. I mean, not every time was me falling down drunk or any of that. I mean, I was high all the time. But I lived this very lonely life. You yeah. know, I had um, a husband that worked all the time, uh -huh. and he was also a huge hunter, so he was gone like four months out of the year. Wow. And he would leave me with these babies, and in my mind, I loved it. Oh, this is great, you know. But then yeah. when I got sober, I needed a partner that was emotionally available. And uh, when I wasn't getting that, I found it in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I found my people that were able to give that to me as I learned how to like truly love myself. Mm. As a result, I mean, the, our, the marriage didn't survive it. So 10 years into this marriage of 18 years, you find the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're talking about the 2008 mm -hmm. period, which was your last, your last drink was in 2008, January 2nd, or that's when you- Came in. That's when you came into the program. What was it like for you coming into the program when you finally got there and you took that knowledge back to your husband at the time? Did he support you or, or was he interested in you actually getting some recovery? What, was, what did that look like? So he did not know about it. I hid it because I didn't trust myself to stay sober. Like, why would I go and tell someone, oh, I'm sober? And when I couldn't even trust myself to stay sober. So it was about three or four months before I even 
told him that I was going to AA because he was asking me, where, where are you going at noon every day? And then sometimes I'd be at the 6.30 at night meeting and, you know, and finally I was like, oh, well, I've been in AA and I've been sober and I guess he supported me. One of the things like my mm -hmm. whole life, all I heard growing up was I was the problem. During this marriage, all I heard was you're the problem. Then I get into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and guess what I hear? I'm the problem, <laughs> you know, and I couldn't figure out why I was the problem. And so his main thing was always, well, you're, you need to be there. You're the problem. You know, that was the whole thing. And then after about eight years of me being in the program, I discovered that I'm not the problem anymore. <laughs> like, I, I, I know my part. I know what's happening. I know what's going on, you know. Had he ever attempted to go to Al-Anon or do any of his own work? No. No. Mm -mm. Hmm. No. I begged. I, I, I begged because I knew that the marriage was not going to survive it if, if it didn't happen. Hmm. And uh, and it's funny because that first sponsor that I was telling you about that had everything ripped out of the big book. Uh -huh. When I had did my fist stab and I had ex husband on there, and uh, and she looked at me and she said, you know, your marriage might not survive this. And uh, I'm like, oh, that's not going to be my story. Huh. And I literally made damn sure that was because because in my head, like my whole identity was wrapped up in my family. It was wrapped up in materialistic stuff. It was wrapped up in a house. It was wrapped up in, you know, cars. It was wrapped up in trips. It was wrapped up in jewelry. That's my identity. Mm. And you know what? She was right. It didn't survive it because at some point, exterior stuff wasn't working for me yeah, The material wasn't it was making, not working. It wasn't making its way in because yeah. you were still hiding the way you were really feeling yeah. inside. And, uh, and I became the problem again. Every time I would mention my feelings or things that, that, I wanted, that we needed to work on in the marriage, oh, you're never gonna be happy. See, those are the words that I heard my whole life growing up was you're never gonna be happy. Yeah. And what was happening for me is I was identifying my happiness with what everybody else was. Right. You know, and I learned in the program that nobody gets to determine my happiness. I get to determine it. You know, and when the materialistic stuff stopped working, mm -hmm. just like drugs and alcohol, I had to make some decisions, you mm. know, and some of those decisions weren't very smart. I mean, I've hit more rock bottoms in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous than I ever did when I was drinking and drugging, mm. and that's the truth. Mm -hmm. I created a lot of wreckage in the program. I, um, you know, that saying that I never understood until I started creating the wreckage was you sober up a horse thief, you still have a horse thief. And when you've got a horse thief that's already good at hiding things, you admire them for what they're doing in the program. You look in the backyard and there are a bunch of horses stabled out there, you know, <laughs> and you, see, you realize, oh boy. Yeah, I mean, there were many meetings that I would sit in the, in, in the chairs and look around and judge everybody's outsides by my insides and going, my God, I've been here for eight years. Why is this happening? That's always well, tough. Yeah, why is everybody else happy, joyous, and free? And I'm sitting here, you know, working the steps, have a sponsor, going to meetings, doing all this stuff, and my life is falling apart. You know, and for me, I had to lose everything twice in sobriety for me to finally, truly understand that my serenity and my peace and my happiness comes from God and God only, you know. That's a strong realization and one and- It's hard, I well, created damage hard. to get there. Yeah, and, and we have to hit the rock bottom. Mm -hmm. Now you talked about two rock bottoms that you hit. Mm -hmm. What was the nature of those two bottoms? Selfishness and self-centeredness. 
I uh, wanted to change the way I felt mm -hmm. and couldn't use drugs and alcohol to do it. So I used other means and I harmed my family mm -hmm. during that. I, you know, wrecked a marriage because of it. Um, and this was how many years into sobriety? Year eight. Year eight, mm -hmm. okay. So here you are, you're in Alcoholics Anonymous and on a daily basis we're being taught and told and experiencing and sponsoring people to do certain things and we're being sponsored towards certain types of behaviors that when I recognize I'm not doing those, it makes the chasm between me and everybody else seem that much wider. And suddenly that old saying to thine own self be true stops being true. And I'm staying sober, but the healing that I so desperately need is not being effectuated at that point. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So there's been several specific moments in my recovery. Year five was one where um, I just wanted to die. Like mm -hmm. I literally wanted to die. I, and now keep in mind that I'm going to meetings. Yeah. I have a sponsor, I'm doing every, I'm sponsoring people, I'm doing it, but I still want to die. But I had also incorporated another recovery program, N not AA, not NA, but just a church thing. Might've made me sicker, I don't know. Yeah. But um, I was incorporating that and I remember sharing in a meeting, it was like a 12, 15 meeting at, at the club, right? And uh, I was spewing off some kind of horse pecky that wasn't AA. Mm -hmm. And this man came up to me and said, "I don't know what you're doing, but you're about ready to kill yourself." I was going home that night to kill myself, and that was with five years of sobriety, right? This is all God because I woke up the next morning to a text that one of our friends shot himself sober that night. The night that you were going to. Oh my God. And when I woke up to that, I was like, oh my God, he had to die so I could live. And I remember going back to this, this man and saying, you're absolutely right. What am I doing wrong? And we spent the next two years, and yes, it was a man. Yeah. Um, we spent the next two years going line by line, word for word, through the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Only the first 164 pages, and it changed my life. Mm -hmm. And I started to get a different perspective. I started to, to understand a little bit more about recovery and my part in my recovery mm -hmm. process and stopped being the victim and became the victor and started to really look at it. And But things at home were still in turmoil, mm. you know, the things at home were still not working out the way I wanted it to work out. And, uh, and it still reminded me of being on that swing that day, you know, with the Bible in my lap and all this, you know, one a drink in one hand and joint in the other going, why aren't you doing anything, God? Like, why aren't you healing this marriage? Like, what is happening here? So all the self-knowledge that you had while you were staying sober, it wasn't healing any of that for you, was it? No. And you were taking those feelings home mm -hmm. to your family, to your children, mm -hmm. to the relationship that was, I guess, soon to end. Yeah. With your uh, husband at the time. You know, and I've had, I, I got pieces of serenity and peace during, you know, that two years from years five to like seven. Like I had gotten some peace and serenity. Uh -huh. I had let, you know, was trying to let God be God and, mm -hmm. you know, heal everything. But and another poignant time in my sobriety was at year seven when I was sitting in a meeting and they were sharing on the step 11 prayer. And all of a sudden I went, screw you, God, I want to be loved. I want to be comforted. I want to be understood. Mm. And I can almost feel God just like, I'm going to let you go do what you need to do. Hopefully you won't drink. And uh, 
that's when all my selfishness and self-centeredness and I became reckless and in sobriety. So at five years you had the realization, you found someone to help you go yeah. through the, the book to help you settle yourself in AA while your life outside of AA was still somewhat chaotic. Mm -hmm. and, and at five years you're thinking, this is not working, I'm, I'm gonna check mm -hmm. out. You have the opportunity, but you don't. The next day you find out somebody has flown that mm -hmm. kite for you. And then at year seven, you get this point of saying, okay, I'm sober, but I don't see God in the picture here the way I need to, so. I'm gonna take life in my own hands again. So what did that look like? Well, I ruined a marriage. You know, I don't want to like really disclose a whole lot, but I mean, right. you can read between the lines. I mean, I did things that I would have never normally done mm -hmm. if I was in my right mind. You know, I, uh, not proud of it, but today I can look back on it and see exactly why it had to happen. You know, and and I had gone to him and said I wanted a divorce, and mm. he told me I'd leave you penniless and without your children. Mm. So I moved into a closet and uh, lived that way for about a year, and um, and was dying again. Like I was miserable and literally still going to meetings. Like keep, keep it. I never stopped going to meetings. I kept coming to meetings and I kept doing the deal. And, and, um, I, uh, you know, finally got to this place where I cannot do this anymore. And, um, and I left and he did, he left me penniless and without my children. And I moved in with friends in the program and, and, you know, worked three jobs and, uh, you know, kind of faked my way through this single life and uh, created a little bit more damage there, you know, with my children because they were like sitting here, oh my God, mom, you know, you know, just left. And um, that's been a hard healing process. And, you know, like it, it's been tough. It's been a tough six years. And, uh, yeah. And then I guess about two, I got into a immediately jumped into a relationship with someone in the program and, um, you know, thinking that was going to fix me and it didn't. And about two and a half years ago, I um, left that relationship and moved in with my aunt thinking that was going to be the worst thing that ever happened to a grown ass woman moving in with, yeah, you know, yeah. your aunt turned out to be the best thing. It allowed me to, um, to heal so much. I, uh, it was just me, my sponsor and God for a solid year and a half. And I started coming to this group. I was like, I don't want anyone coming in my square feet of space. I just want to, you know, and, uh, you know, you can't live life like that. This place healed me. Yeah. Fortunately, there are a lot of people in this particular club. They'll let somebody do that, sit in their own little puddle mm -hmm. for a while, but Thank God there are people who are strong enough in their own sobriety to walk right up to them and say, you need to do something, and that is get with the program the way we get with the program, and they'll pull you mm -hmm. out, which is a good thing. I, you know, there's some clubs where people don't extend themselves right. to that extent. Oh, she'll find what she needs when she needs to find it now. There are people in this club who say, I'm here for mm -hmm. you. Let me help pull you out of what yeah. you're in. And it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and I, I sit and, you know, when, as we're talking, and it sounds like, you know, the last 15 years have been, just been hell. It's not true. You know, I've had so much growth, but my story is not that life became happy, joyous, and free. 
you know, I don't identify with with the people who come in here and they're like their life is just perfect and everything is great and everything was wonderful since they got that's not my story. My story was shit. Yeah, I get that. Created by my own doing, you know, but that has not been my story. It's just been the last two and a half years that I can honestly say that I've had more peace and it's experienced more serenity and more love um, than ever in my recovery. Yeah. And I had to lose everything to get there. Like everything. I had to lose my kids. I had to lose, you know, relationships. I had to lose friendships. I had to lose everything mm. in order for me to get to this place of, wow, my serenity is not placed in anybody today. You know, I'm going to be okay whether you stay or you go. Yeah. And uh, was popping the doors open on those hidden secrets mm -hmm. a part of that for you? The healing process, I mean. Yeah. I mean, being able to admit the things that I did in sobriety, you know, it, not everybody does that. You know, a lot of people do all that trashy behavior before they get here. I did not do any of that trashy behavior before I got here. I did it in sobriety. Yeah, I get that. And what, what I really want to honor about you and about this story and you're sharing, I know, a very intimate part of your life, I feel the genuine nature of what you're saying. The great thing about what you're doing right now is that people who listen to this or will hear your story who wonder about whether they can get through this, this, and that as they stay sober. Imagine the person with one year sitting there thinking, well, I wonder if I could really lose everything and still stay sober. That's the message that you're, you're bringing out today is that you were able to go through all of that and stay sober. The problem is when we share in a meeting, we've got three to five minutes to share about some part of our life that we can share about almost anything. Mm -hmm. And we can certainly, in my case, there were times within my sobriety where I wasn't feeling good about myself or I was feeling depressed or I was feeling whatever. And I could go in and when I got asked to share, I could share from something about, oh, this is, this is what happened with AA over the years or, or, you know, share some kind of superficial something or other. And I remember I was sitting at a meeting and I was sharing like that because there were just parts of my life that just were not going the way I wanted them to go, even though I was staying sober and staying connected and sponsoring people and blah, blah, blah. And my sponsor just happened to be sitting in the meeting with me at the time. And he said, you know, I've been listening to you share lately and it's clear to me you're sharing from your head and not your heart. And what came up for me in that process was how scared and fearful I was about sharing from my heart with people who I knew loved me, who I knew cared about me, but because I wasn't feeling that way about myself, I didn't want them to care about me. I didn't want them to love me. And he said, if you don't start sharing from your heart and leaving the response up to God, you're going to drink again. And shortly thereafter, I started doing that in a very sheepish kind of way in meetings. But sure as I started doing that, other people started to respond. So I really want to honor you. That's, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing that you're doing, being able to share. And these are not things that you feel proud about. I mm -hmm. get that. Absolutely not. But the gratitude in it is that you can share them and not be judged by. Well, and it's that um, thing that, that that man that took me through the big book would always say, mm -hmm. um, if one thing in my life would be different, it would all be different. And every single thing had to happen for me to get right here right now. Yeah, I get that. And so I don't crap on that today. You know, it, it's difficult healing my relationship with my kids because they don't understand. They don't, they don't get it. 
They will one day. Yeah. When they're not in their 20s, you know, they'll understand when life starts happening there, you know, and, and maybe one of them will end up in these rooms. I don't know. Have you had a chance to sit down with them at any point and really talk about this? Um, the oldest one, for sure, he because he saw a lot and he was in the chaotic home to, you know, from a stepchild situation. Mm-hmm. The younger two, a little bit. Um, my daughter is more of a... Um, AA stole her mom. Yeah. You know, and uh, AA ruined her family. Mm. She's not there. You know, AA didn't do anything. I did it. And she doesn't understand that yet. I mean, she's 24. You know, I think when life starts happening and it's not going her way, you know, she'll start to understand a little bit more. She'll need to have her own awakening, is what you're saying. Absolutely. My oldest one, um, he gets it saving him a seat maybe I don't know but I've learned to allow my kids to be where they need to be and just be the open vessel when they're ready to talk about it Mm. um kind of like my own parents I know my parents aren't in a place to talk about certain things and I respect that today and your parents are still around so you've got that as someday at some time you may be able to but not just not today one of the things that my kids talk about all the time, they uh, like, if you ever ask my kid, what's the one thing mom does every time she picks up the phone to call y'all? The first thing out of my mouth is always, how you doing, kid? Yeah. Because that's all I ever wanted my dad to do. Yeah. It's all I ever wanted to hear from my dad, and it's not capable, so I make sure that I do it to my own kids. Isn't that something? But I look at my mom and my dad today in a completely different perspective. Yeah. They were taught what they were taught. Well, and you get to see the legacy of when you inject AA into a generation in a family, what can happen with the next generation. Yeah. Now, do you, you sponsor other women right mm-hmm. now? Mm-hmm. Tell me what that's like for you. You know, I mean, through my sobriety, it's been, you know, sponsor ton, mm-hmm. and then not so many. And uh, a couple of them are more maintenance. Right now I've got a newcomer and it's just a beautiful thing. It's it's beautiful because um, I have a lot of what not to do. <laughs> you know, and I sponsor from a very different place. I yeah. sponsor right out the first 164 pages. Um, I'm not your therapist. I'm not your dating coach. I'm not any of that. Sounds like the man that was that worked with you for two years. Right? Yeah, I don't do any of that. Like, show me in the big book where it says you can't do dot 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 dot. Right. And it's not. And so I'm like, look, don't do it. But call me when you do, because it's going to hurt. You know, that's exactly what was told to me. Yeah. You know, I remember going to my sponsor and saying, I'm thinking about doing this is at year seven. Yeah. Thinking about doing X, Y, Z. Don't do it. Don't do it. Call me when you do, because yeah. it's going to hurt. And so my alcoholic mind heard, call me when you do. You're giving me permission to do do this and create all this chaos? I understand what they meant by that now. Yeah. You know? And so I do a lot of, um, here's my experience in that. But I'm not going to tell you what to do. Maybe you'll drink. Maybe you won't. That's exactly what was told to me. And how I did not drink during those years, God's grace. I absolutely believe that today. I'm a firm believer in the idea that sometimes all of the things I do are just barely enough to get me through something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I've got this bank account of spiritual capital and the gifts of AA to be able to fund me in getting through something in the future. The problem is I never know what the balance is. Mm -hmm. So I walk around saying, I know I've got a balance, but will it be enough? So I just make sure I do a lot. And what a lot means, 
I, you know, is it more meetings? Is it more contact with people and whatever else? I can also withdraw into myself thinking, man, maybe I'm doing too much, you know? Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe all this I'm doing is more about ego than it is about service and, and so forth. Do you, do you encounter any of those self-doubts about yourself? I noticed during, you know, that first five years yeah. that I was sponsoring so many people and it was almost like it was like, oh, look at me, I'm sponsoring all these people, you know, but I'm dying inside. And today I look at it as, I don't care how many people I'm sponsoring. Mm -hmm. It's more of, you want help? I'm here to help you. Mm -hmm. I don't have to, my ego got deflated, I guess, so yeah. to speak. It was more of, I can see why I was sponsoring all these women because then I didn't have to focus on me. Mm -hmm. And so now I have a healthy balance between the two. My recovery is not based on how many people I sponsor, if they make it or don't make it. My recovery is based on my relationship with God and what I'm doing for my recovery. I think I work a pretty strong program. I am um, actively involved and participate when, you know, I'm in a different stage in my sobriety. You know, I'm in that empty nest stage. My kids aren't around, but I got elderly parents. So yeah. when, I when I'm in a meeting and I hear people talk about their parents, I'm listening yeah. because I'm in a different place. I want to know how they're doing it. I want to know how you're walking through this with grace and how you're taking care of your parents. And so I'm in a completely different place, but that's how my whole recovery has been. Yeah. I remember when I was creating all that wreckage and sobriety and sitting in a meeting and sitting there looking around going, oh my God, no one's doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I'll be damned if I didn't hear somebody in the meeting share about what they did in sobriety yeah. and how they lost everything in sobriety. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, I never hear that. So I've learned to really pay attention to where I'm at in my recovery, you know? Mm -hmm. And I use my sponsor today. Mm -hmm. God love her. I mean, I, I use her. I don't use her for dating advice. Right. <laughs> I use her for recovery. Like, what does it mean when I'm feeling this way, you know? And I do the journaling, I do the two-way prayers, you know, uh, where I, I write out my prayer to God, then I allow Him to speak back to me. I do these things yeah. because I know what it takes for me to continue to maintain my, my serenity. Yeah. I don't want to give that up to anybody anymore. And what you've just summed up is that there's a lot of different things that go into maintaining long-term sobriety, even when you know there can be some severe bumps along the way. Everything that you've just talked about doing is the work that we have to do. And it's, when you run into a, a newcomer, like, and you get the chance to talk to her, knowing that it may be the last time you ever talk to her because she won't come back, mm -hmm. or maybe it'll be the first time you talk to her in a relationship for the next 20 years, what do you say to that woman that, about AA and about sobriety that will encourage her? You know, I think for, for me, like one of the main things is um, you don't have to figure it out. Hmm. Like, I wanted to figure it out, and I wanted to hurry up and be there. And what I discovered is when I got there, I wanted to be here. <laughs> right. You know? So just come back. You know, sometimes I'm, I come across a little harsh because the truth is not everyone makes it back. That's true. You know, there's a bottom below the bottom you know. And if you don't think so, you're lacking imagination. Yeah. And so I want p them to come back. I want them to, to get this. But really, what have I gotten? A daily reprieve. And so the main thing is 
know when your next meeting is. Yeah. That was the best thing I heard mm. on my very first day. Mm. Know when your next meeting is. And I still know today when my next meeting is. Yeah. If I make it, great. If not, that's okay too. Well, that, that's so important. I mean, when they say meeting makers make it, what they're talking about is the accountability of going, the intention, the motive, everything else is lined up in the right way. Well, the truth is not every Maddie makes it, even going to meetings. I know. You know, I, know. I mean, That's I tough. had a really good friend that all he did was just go to meetings. He didn't work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, found him dead, mm. you know? And if you would have told me he was drinking during that time, I would have been like, no way, no way. Had I not had found him in his home, I would have, with liquor bottles everywhere, I would have been like, so meeting makers don't always make it either. Yeah. You've got to have all of it. Yeah, yeah. Meeting you know? makers who do the work. Yeah. And who are willing to turn their life and their will over to the care of God yeah. as they understand them at the time. The thing I always wonder about, and it sounds like from what you're talking about from your childhood, similar to mine in a lot of ways, that even, well, even though we know what the answer is and even though we know God exists, there's something about it that does, just doesn't seem like it's gonna work mm -hmm. the next time out. And I often wonder what it would be like to know the things I can and can't change before I have to go into the situation absolutely. and make those decisions. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, right? I mean, that's that's the thing. Yeah. And I love what you said about we had similar you know, background. Yeah. It's not so much that we had similar things, it's as we understand the feeling. Yeah, Like the feeling. when I hear someone share in a meeting, like. Just a few weeks ago, right before my AA birthday, like I don't know, a lot of people, and I have in the past gotten squirrely, like about a month before AA birthday. Right. And I noticed that I wasn't getting squirrely this time. Yeah. Like, and, and I'm questioning it. Why am I not getting squirrely about my <laughs> AA birthday? Yeah. And uh, a guy with 37 days came in and I heard his story and I could feel the feeling. And that brought about that feeling that I needed so I could go, oh yeah, you're gonna have 15 years. You don't have to get squirrely. You just gotta, I needed to remember the feeling. I needed to remember the feeling of 37 days. And then that very same day, another guy shared about how at three o'clock it would be on him. And I'm like, oh my God, I need, yeah, I know that feeling yeah. of it being on you at three o'clock going, I'm not gonna do this today. I am not gonna drink today and it just be on you and you have to have that release. Um, being able to be with people like you in this meeting especially, because you've got, there's a certain maturity that I, that I hear in your story and the acknowledgement of just how close you came to losing it all and how what you've been talking in is a sense of gratitude, yeah. I think. And to me, you sound like one grateful alcoholic. Yeah, and, I owe a debt. Yeah. I don't know that I'll ever be able to repay. I feel like the time we spent today has been just Thank you. absolutely enriching to me and yeah. it's been wonderful and I enjoy spending time in meetings with you. I love you. you and you're a beautiful oh, person thank you. and it's it's good to get to know you that much better. So Yeah, I agree. Same here. So this has been a wonderful opportunity. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest Susan A for sharing her story and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcast. That will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. 
or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast, or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.